Section 8 of By Ox Train to California, A Narrative of Crossing the Plains in 1860, by Lavinia Honeyman Porter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Section 8, Chapter 13, The Deserts, Indescribable Sunsets, Alkali Dust, Chance Acquaintances, The Welcome Sunday Morning Flapjack, Saltwell, Fish Springs, Willow Springs, the Humboldt River, Graves on the Desert. Leaving Salt Lake City, our road crossed the River Jordan. We did not get a view of the Great Salt Lake, as it lay some twenty miles and a good day's travel beyond our direct route. We left the green and fertile land around the near neighborhood of the city, and again came on a desert as barren as the Great Sahara. Here we encountered sixty miles of almost pure sand. Seas of water would not have produced verdure on its barren soil. The drought was intense, and there was no cultivation or industry of any sort. The scanty vegetation was the everlasting sagebrush and greasewood, which I am tired of mentioning. The mountains and plains seemed to divide the ground equally. The valleys were from 10 to 15 miles across, though in the clear air of Utah they seemed only half that distance. I remember clearly the beautiful sunsets. In this rainless climate the mountains in the full sunlight took on the hues of ruby and carnelian, and at sunset and twilight assumed tints of opal and amethyst. No artist, however skillfully he might handle his brush, could do justice to the brilliant stretches of rare and roseate colorings of these indescribable sunrises and sunsets. But the arid soil produced little food for our stock. Here and there grew the bunch grass on which depended the life and sustenance of our cattle. Only at rare intervals would we reach a stream whose banks afforded forage for our stock and rest and refreshment for weary and thirsty travelers. Springs were most infrequent, and often we had to dig to a considerable depth in the shallow, dry bed of the streams for water, finding barely enough to partially slack the thirst of our cattle. And, oh, the suffering from the scorching, burning alkali dust! It filled the air, penetrated through everything, covered our bodies, found its dusty way into our food boxes, bedding, and clothing. All the water we drank was tainted with its soapy flavor. It choked up the pores of our skin, eating its way into the nostrils and lips. Our faces were continually cracked and sore from its action. Dreary and monotonous as this country seems now as you travel over it in a comfortable pullman, it was indescribably more so in the days of the slow-moving ox team. It was over six hundred miles from Salt Lake to the base of the Sierras, but the roundabout way that sometimes we had to travel in order to find food and water for our stock made the distance much longer. The best time we could possibly make would not average over a hundred miles a week. At that period, for miles over these inhospitable plains, there was not a habitation visible, now, on the line of the railways, thriving towns and villages abound, and the iron horse bellows forth his deep-throated song almost hourly. 
the thousands speeding over this unfriendly soil little realized the discomforts impeding our slow journey we occasionally met some strange characters while traveling on the plains and through the mountains of utah and nevada men who had drifted over these trackless wilds isolating themselves from the companionship of their kind and becoming partial savages the monotony of our journey was sometimes dispelled by one of these men dropping into our camp and we became much interested in the strange stories of their wonderful adventures it appeared that every hour in their roving lives had its dangers and hairbreadth escapes some were trappers and scouts others stockmen and herdsmen many apparently had no other desire than to live close to nature and remote from civilization we encouraged them to tell of the remarkable episodes of their venturesome lives and it seemed to give them as much pleasure to relate as it did to us to sit alternately thrilling or trembling at the wonderful stories none of the many tales we had read of western adventure could so have moved us not even the famous fenimore cooper over whose stories we had burned the midnight oil two of these frontiersmen met us on the road one day they had been alone in the wilderness for weeks hunting and prospecting they turned back and went on with us for the balance of the day we were informed that one of these men was the greatest indian exterminator on the frontier his whole family had been massacred by the indians and his greatest pleasure was in shooting indians whenever opportunity offered we looked forward to saturday night in camp as a welcome rest and relaxation six days travel was enough for man and beast we needed the quiet and repose of sunday it was not always a complete rest for me for there was the usual laundering and baking still it was a change from the continual moving on it also gave us the opportunity to indulge in two extra hours of sleep in the morning which proved a blessing to me early rising was my bete noire the extra time gave me a chance to cook a better sunday morning breakfast a yearning filled our souls or rather our stomachs for a broiled chicken fried oysters or an omelet hot rolls we had always for breakfast but sunday morning's flapjacks were our greatest treat these were made from the sour milk i had carefully saved a day or two our milk supply was gradually failing as our little cow could no longer give us a sufficient quantity on the dry and scanty grazing in place of butter the ever-ready bacon gravy thickened with flour and milk was used we had both become adept in tossing the flapjacks up into the air turning them over and back into the frying pan and these had to satisfy us in lieu of all the good things we had in our imagination we were happy if we had decent water to make our coffee palatable travelers on these desert wastes found scant provision for sensitive stomachs fortunately our outdoor life and exercise found us with appetites whetted for bacon and beans by this time my condition became apparent to the most casual observer frequently the squaws approached me and patting me on the bosom would say by and by papoose the urgent need of some new maternity gowns appealed to me every day but where was i to procure them hundreds of miles from any dry goods emporium 
necessity that stern mother of invention came to my aid before starting out on our journey i had made to protect it from the dust of travel a stout covering of blue plaid gingham for my feather bed this outer covering i had removed when i sold the bed in salt lake ripping open the plain straight seams i cut and fashioned without guide or pattern a comfortable and serviceable if not a stylish garment making it by hand at odd moments in camp or as i rode along on my way from a big flowered dressing gown that my husband had discarded as being too effeminate to be worn on the plains changing its lines from its too masculine contour i made another suitable and befitting dress although the coloring was almost too bright and gay for that style of garment time hung heavily on our hands as we plodded along over the barren stretches of utah we became almost as lifeless as the country over which we were traveling even by day there was an all-pervading silence no chirp of bird no hum of insect far ahead of us a white line marked our road it seemed to ever beckon us on over more arid stretches of desert sand and sagebrush this part of our journey was one perpetual search for water and when we were fortunate enough to find it we did nothing but condemn and criticize it all night grumbling at its quality and lack of quantity yet we left it in the morning with fear that we might not again find any so good the nights were unbearable with the unutterable stillness the unbroken silence seemed to overpower us with its subdued indifference it struck a chill to our hearts and we sought our lowly beds with dread and timidly slept under the distant and unfamiliar stars just before reaching fish springs we passed one of the salt wells that were common to this part of the country its depth was unknown but the water contained therein was so strongly impregnated with salt that it was like a strong brine this well was six or eight feet in diameter and all around it the vegetation was covered with a white incrustation the suction of this strange well was so great that it would draw in anything used in attempting to explore its depths a rude fence had been thrown around it to guard the unwary traveller fish springs was a large pool of water lying at the base of a low mountain for three or four miles it sent out a large and copious stream but the thirsty sands soon absorbed it the water while brackish was said to abound in fish we threw in our line and tried to coax a bite from the finny denizens but the only bite we got was from the swarming mosquitoes immense in size and venomous as starved creatures they stung our cattle to the verge of madness and at early dawn we were glad to get beyond their onslaughts a rude stage station was established at fish springs and the solitary keeper greeted us warmly the sight of travelers to pass the night brought some variety into his isolated life which had no companionship save the horses and his dogs and cats we filled his heart with gratitude by leaving with him some of our tattered and torn literature from this man we learned that the nearest water to be found was over thirty miles away 
and he urged us if possible to make the drive in one day next morning long before the sun was up we were traveling our way through a dusty sandy pass the sky was overcast with heavy laden clouds the heat was intense peal after peal of thunder shook the air but only a slight shower overtook us however we hailed it with delight for while there was more thunder than shower we were gratified for any moisture this unusual rain served to cool the air and we hurried along with renewed zeal hoping to reach by nightfall the point already described to us as pleasant valley darkness overtook us long before we reached its precious locality we knew however that it could not be far off by the way our thirsty cattle snuffed the air and by their increased gait which required no urging a little later we drove into the valley where the pure and sparkling water of willow springs greeted us with its refreshing coolness how we reveled in its pure sweet depths our thirsty cattle drank again and again stopped to graze a while then returned to dip their brown muzzles into its leaping waters the vegetation around willow springs was the most luxurious we had seen since we left salt lake and as we had overdriven our stock we stayed there for two or three days we were told by the keeper of this station that we were now over the utah desert that is the northeast corner of it though it extended some two or three hundred miles south of us for a time after leaving pleasant valley our road lay over the mountains of utah which brought us some relief from the everlasting sagebrush and sand of the desert these mountains were fairly wooded a few cedars raised their gnarled and stunted bodies from the ground to a height of ten or fifteen feet there were also pine of equally scrubby character but in the canyons grew large balsam firs my little son engaged himself in gathering large quantities of the gum that exuded from these trees the flavoring and chewing qualities very much resembled that of the spruce gum of the east our route through these utah mountains led us over innumerable ranges we seldom lacked for water there but the way was devious and wild one afternoon leaving the higher ranges behind us we struck a level plain and saw ahead of us a drove of five or six hundred cattle which their drivers were urging over a low marshy piece of ground over which had been built a rough pole bridge such a large number crossing at one time had torn the frail structure to pieces as the ground was too miry and uncertain for us to attempt the crossing we were compelled to wait over a day while james with the help of the herdsman repaired the bridge over which our timid oxen reluctantly trod our horse for a time utterly refused to trust his precious bones on the uncertain structure when we arrived at ruby valley we were told that we were in nevada territory i looked in vain for the precious stones that i supposed had given name to the little station on reaching diamond springs i found them also lacking in the sparkling gems whose name they bore finally we arrived at the banks of the humboldt river i say banks for most of the way along its course was little else but banks i had heard tales of the humboldt since i was a child i had studied its devious wanderings through sandy deserts in my geography at school 
mythical stories had been repeated by different people we met on our journey, and yet I was wholly unprepared for the sight of that river which appeared such an insignificant stream. In many places there was scarcely enough water to dignify it by the name of stream, although it was said to be three hundred miles long. In the fullest part that I saw, it was never larger than an ordinary brooklet. Its narrow bottom at intervals produced a coarse grass, but so strongly impregnated with alkali that no man who had any regard for the life of his stock would allow them to eat it, if there was any alternative. In some places they had to eat or die, and many of them did eat and die, as the numerous whitened bones that covered its banks and borders testified. James turned his stock away from it, if possible, preferring to let them browse on the bullberry or the buffalo bush, which grew here and there among the willows, or, if it was imperative that they should feed on this coarse grass in lieu of something better, he would take his sickle and cut the grass for them, as by doing so the stock would not get at the roots, which contained much more of the alkali. Among its ugly, sandy borders no tree worthy of the name was seen. But there were innumerable droves of gadflies, mosquitoes, and gnats, countless and bloodthirsty. There was no comfort to be found either night or day along its borders. During the day the heat was intense, and the thick dust permeated the atmosphere. We thought we had driven over many barren lands, but our pathway along the Humboldt discounted anything with which we had come in contact. Our pilgrimage through these scorching deserts of Nevada was one long to be remembered. Each morning, as the blazing sun arose above the horizon, our tired and sunburned eyes looked in vain for some green spot in all that burning sand, and as we slowly and wearily plodded along its glowing surface, overcome with heat and consumed with thirst, we suffered almost beyond endurance. Unless one has traveled by our slow method, they can have only the slightest conception of these blistering, waterless wastes. Many emigrants whose stock was in no condition to stand this long-continued travel without water found their stock dying and leaving them with no means of transportation. Often they were compelled to abandon their wagons, pack a few provisions on a single ox or mule, and toil on foot. The bones of hundreds of cattle lay bleaching in the sun. Graves without number were dug by the wayside. It was pitiful and heart-rendering to see them in such numbers. Scarcely a day passed that we did not observe the lowly burial place of some poor sufferer, who had at last succumbed to the hardships of this long journey. These rude graves were sometimes covered with a pile of stones. Others bore a headboard on which was rudely cut the name of him who lay beneath. For them no weeping willow sighed a sad requiem, nor enfolded their lowly mounds with its tender swaying branches. No marble shaft praised their deeds or told their fame. No flowers rare and sweet rested on the unconsecrated soil. But the horned toad and lizard glided beneath the growth of scanty weeds. Those lying here were lonely now, deserted by the loved ones whose bleeding hearts had been forced to leave them at rest beneath the bitter soil. 
fortunately at this late day the horrors of this region have been overcome in numerous instances wells have been dug and water led into the arid desert railroads have been built and in this age of fierce and furious competition men and money have overcome many difficulties and now a trip westward to the pacific coast in a comfortable car is sought by all and considered a delightful and entertaining journey of a few days since our long hazardous journey of eighteen hundred and sixty i have travelled back and forth a number of times over much of the route we slowly toiled over so long ago it has been a constant source of wonder to me how we were able to endure it chapter fourteen meeting new friends the pranks of a cook leaving the humboldt for carson valley climbing the sierras we had been in the humboldt region only a few days when one night we drove into a camp of emigrants who had preceded us all the way from salt lake their teams which consisted of mules and horses kept a day or two ahead of us but owing to the sickness of a valuable horse they had been delayed on the road the company consisted of a white-haired and rugged old patriarch from the state of michigan with his aged wife and two daughters girls near my own age a son and a nephew together with three hired men who had charge of the fine horses the old gentleman was driving through to california completed the company their traveling outfit consisted of a substantial carriage fitted up with every comfort and convenience for the tedious journey and drawn by four large mules two huge prairie schooners carrying their camp equipage and tents and another wagon conveying grain and provisions for the family and horses the camp wagon held every comfort that could be devised for a family tenting on the plains an immense cook stove was loaded and unloaded every day for it required a great amount of cooking to feed so many a dining table of rough boards strong hickory bottomed chairs and any number of minor comforts that were unknown to us with only our single team to carry all our possessions the old gentleman whose name was brookfield was a grand-looking specimen of a western farmer he was stout rather short with snow-white hair and beard and a ruddy countenance beaming with genial good nature and still vigorous in spite of advancing years his wife was just the opposite painfully angular and inclined to be somewhat shrewish a perfect paragon of neatness and just as much a stickler for order and cleanliness on the plains as she doubtless was in her well-ordered home in michigan the daughters were comely girls of eighteen and twenty with long beautiful naturally curling hair that hung in ringlets to their waists and which curled so tightly that no amount of pulling could straighten it these curls were a source of great curiosity to the indians their own hair hung so straight that they could not understand the difference and watched the girls most intently sometimes an indian more curious than the others would venture to examine the curls drawing one out to its extreme length and releasing it he would look so surprised to see it quickly renew its original curl the girls became uneasy at the sensation their hair produced and wore their bonnets whenever the indians invaded the camp the son of mr brookfield was a capable and attractive young man much like the father 
the nephew was the cook and also the wag of the party witty and quick at repartee and a great practical joker his name was bert brookfield he called the old lady aunt debbie and he truly was a thorn in aunt debbie's side for morning noon and night he was ever racking his brains for some joke to play upon his nervous old aunt to me it was an amusing sight to watch bert as he gaily donned his cook's cap and apron preparatory to cooking what he called an elaborate coarse dinner aunt debbie hovered around to see that he washed his hands before mixing the bread he now and then pretended to wipe his floured hands on the seat of his pants or his nose on the dish towel or carelessly caught up the corner of a horse blanket to wipe the dust from the frying pan much to the disgust of his fastidious aunt who continually scolded and fretted until the meal was served the meeting with this congenial company was a source of great pleasure to us for after leaving salt lake i had not even seen a white woman james and i had gradually grown silent and taciturn and had unwittingly partaken of the gloom and somberness of the dreary landscape we no longer gaily sang or joked as we kept step beside our slow cattle we were tired and jaded to absolute silence and to passive endurance by the monotony of the desert this lively company of young people near our own ages brought new life and interest to us two lonely travelers they were all musical the girls had well-trained voices and sang sweetly while the young men played on different instruments they had brought with them for the few weeks that we traveled together the time passed pleasantly and harmoniously our camp at night was a season of mirth and good fellowship and no matter how long and tiresome was the day's drive or how many vicissitudes we encountered we each managed at nightfall to furnish our quota of amusement one morning at breakfast we heard aunt debbie berating bert because the coffee was not up to the usual standard he insisted that he had prepared the coffee as usual only the alkali water gave it a disagreeable flavor i had finished up my camp work and was spending a few moments in visiting them in their camp aunt debbie was looking after bert keeping up her usual careful scrutiny over his pots and pans to see they were properly cleansed i observed bert taking up the coffee pot and from its cavernous depths draw out a long and loathsome worm which he held up to aunt debbie's view with a cry of horror she made a dash for his curly head he nimbly evaded her clutches but did not escape her tongue lashing he informed me afterwards that he had dug two or three feet into the banks of the stream for that worm with which to electrify his squeamish aunt and had put it into the pot after the breakfast was over another morning bert arose from his slumbers making a great hue and cry over the loss of one of his moccasins and went limping around the camp with one bare and unshod foot as i watched him beating up his huge pan of batter for the hot cakes that he cooked every morning he turned and gave me a sly wink denoting mischief on his part our drive for the day was to be one of unusual length everyone was hurrying his or her work in order to get an early start before the sun grew so intolerably hot 
Aunt Debbie was busily engaged in helping Bert stow away his cooking utensils. Her tongue, in the meanwhile, was running over with his many derelictions, while he drolly parried her sharp thrusts at his lack of order and neatness. Picking up his half-emptied batter bowl, he looked into it a moment with apparent surprise and consternation. Then, drawing forth the huge moccasin that he claimed had either been lost or stolen, held it up before the horrified eyes of Aunt Debbie, all dripping with the remnants of the batter. These and similar harmless jokes he was constantly playing on that irascible old lady. The few weeks spent in this company were the most enjoyable part of our journey. While their mules and horses made faster time than our oxen, yet at the end of the day, by driving a little later, we managed to camp together. Owing to the lameness of their fine bay stallion, they too made shorter drives. But after the animal had almost entirely recovered, Mr. Brookfield was anxious to make up his lost time and get his fine stock into California as soon as possible. He decided to still follow the Humboldt to its sink, and from there to take the road to California, where his final destination was to be Marysville. We had learned that the route by way of Carson Valley led us through more fertile lands with better forage for our cattle, a very important matter to us, though it was a longer and more indirect route. Very reluctantly we parted company with these good people, promising each other at some future day we should meet in California. But, alas for promises, we never saw or heard of them again, although we wrote to them and made inquiries concerning them from people of Marysville. Whether they changed their minds like ourselves, and never went to their intended destination, we knew not. To this day I have never forgotten their pleasant companionship on the desolate plains of Nevada. As we turned our faces in the direction of Carson River, a feeling of thankfulness took possession of our hearts. We were leaving the alkali soil of the humble desert behind us, and, though the Carson River was absorbed by the same desert, yet a glance at even its worst features was enough to convince us that it watered a far more hopeful region. Large cottonwoods dotted the banks, here and there were willows, and the wild rose in full bloom occasionally cropped out on its sandy banks. Still, the prevalence of drought was everywhere visible, and, long before we reached Carson City, we traveled over miles of land doomed to sterility. As we neared the town, there appeared to be a great rush of miners and prospectors headed for some new mines opened up in that vicinity. Some of these men were so enthusiastic over the prospect that they urged us to go no further but to locate in the new mines. Our faces, however, were set for California, and we would not be persuaded. This embryo town was so small and scattered that we hardly knew when we entered it, yet it aspired to be the emporium of the new gold region. The features of the country had notably changed. From the dry and thirsty sagebrush land, we gradually drove into soft meadows, with numberless rivulets flowing down from the Sierras. Owing to the shallowness of their beds, they were easily controlled, and had been made to irrigate a large portion of the land. Small farms and gardens occasionally came in view, 
and for our stock we found the sweetest and most nutritious grass in abundance. The village of Genoa was a most picturesque little spot. It stood on a bench between the mountains and the valley, with rivulets flowing through and around it to give fertility to its soil and fructify its gardens and green fields. I was charmed with its quiet beauty and seclusion, the brightness of its innumerable streams, and the grandeur of the neighboring mountains, whose emerald verdure impressed my mind with a vividness which only those who have passed long months on a shadeless desert can fully realize. From Carson to the pretty little village of Genoa was a drive of nearly twenty miles. After a night spent in those charming surroundings, we began the ascent of the Sierra Nevadas, the last range of mountains we would have to climb before we viewed the land we had traveled so long and far to see. There were still two weeks of mountain travel ahead of us, and we proceeded slowly, owing in a great measure to my condition. The continual jolting of the wagon over the uneven roadway was exceedingly trying to me, so much so, in fact, that I finally gave up riding altogether, taking my slow way up the mountain on foot. Day after day, for the next two weeks, I trudged slowly and painfully through the red dust of the Sierras, from Genoa at the eastern base to the foothills of California. I had always boasted of my pedestrian powers, but when I surveyed that road winding up and still up, my pride in being a great walker vanished, and, like the old bishop who was so fond of worldly comfort, I said, All, all is vanity except a carriage. I could no longer mount my horse, and only by slow degrees made my way on foot, stopping frequently to rest the weary muscles. Then, upward again, every nerve as tense as steel and every faculty alert, I climbed with painful toil. After leaving Genoa, we wound around the curved border of a narrow roadway, excavated on the mountain side, and only a little wider than the wagon's tracks. So frequent and sharp were these curves that the forward yoke of oxen would be out of sight as I followed the wagon. Looking down the precipice on which we were traveling, I shuddered at the thought of what might happen if our sturdy cattle made a misstep on the narrow roadway that seemed to hang on the mountainside. My little son had been suffering for several days with a sprained ankle and was compelled to ride, so on his account I was extremely anxious as I watched the wagon lurch around the sharp and narrow curves. The scenery along these winding roads was magnificent. The tall pines grew straight as arrows, and clinging to their sturdy trunks were beautiful variegated yellow and green lichens. The smaller trees of these immense forests were here in richest profusion. Hemlocks, balsam, pines, and fir trees filled up the intervening spaces. The whole forest seemed gay with life and motion. Squirrels frolicked and scampered from tree to tree. The agile and graceful chipmunk darted hither and thither in the low hazel bushes, chattering noisily as he ran, as if scolding us for disturbing him on his own domain, his bright eyes twinkling as they peered up at us from some leafy bough. The blue jay, with his towering crest and noisy, discordant call, 
flew swiftly through the dark foliage of the evergreen trees here and there a dusty lupin lifted up its blue-tipped stem all strangely beautiful when compared with the alkaline deserts over which we had so recently toiled the first day's climb into the sierras was a novel experience to me these mountains were so different in aspect from the bare bald rockies ever and anon a little spring by the roadside gave the thirsty climbers a chance to quench their thirst as i plodded slowly up the mountainside i had ample time to observe all the beauties of its ever-changing scenery winding around some steep cliff new surprises would burst upon my vision here a transient view of still more towering summits covered with snow there a glimpse of a stream flowing between or at the base of some deep and dark ravine these beautiful mountains which rose like castellated towers astonished me with the immensity of their huge pines attaining heights that seemed wonderful the enormous cones were often a foot long and the rich green foliage like long needles swayed with the passing breeze lying prone by the wayside and crossing each other at every imaginable angle were hundreds of these monarchs of the forest laid low by the woodman's axe it seemed a sacrilege to gaze upon them in their prostrate grandeur on every side were huge stumps at whose bases lay the fallen trunks of the once noble trees civilization made roadways a necessity and these grand old trees were the victims of the march of improvement the rocky mountains failed to compare with the sierra range in the variety and grandeur of this great forest growth bewitched by the beauty of the surroundings i hardly realized that i had grown weary and footsore until the setting sun began to cast its shadows over the pine-hung slopes of these mountain gorges looking down this slope far below us lay the hamlet of genoa that we had left so early in the morning still in sight although we had climbed steadily above it all that long september day under a huge pine tree we placed our tent cooked our humble supper and prepared to sleep our first night in the vastness of the great sierras breathing that balmy air balsam tinctured from the fragrant pines through the open door of our little tent we watched the moon as it shone down upon us through the interlacing boughs i was too weary to sleep and traced the movements of the bright and radiant sphere until it passed beyond my vision at last i must have fallen asleep for i was awakened long before dawn by the most unearthly shrieks ringing through the forest and coming back again in plaintive echoes from the hills beyond these fearful wails were caused by a death in a camp of indians who were located in our near vicinity but of whose presence we had been totally ignorant end of chapter fourteen and section eight